Welcome to the Crossroads Church Sermon Podcast. The following message is meant to help intersect your road with God's road. Crossroads Church gathers to discover God, grow in Him, and reach out to others. For more information, visit crossroadsstjames.life. Last week, we finished up the book of Daniel. Um, we, we moved, um, we moved through that, uh, that last chapter, a lot about the end times, um, and some powerful, uh, prophecies that are there again. Um, a lot of folks, not a lot of folks, but, but there's some liberal scholar theology out there, uh, that doesn't believe that Daniel wrote a lot of those things. And, uh, they think that it was inserted into the Bible, uh, much later after it all happened. And you know what? We're going we're gonna to see a little bit of that again today, not necessarily with Daniel, of course, uh, but, but we're going to see some, some interesting stuff. So we've gone from Daniel, and now we're moving on to not just an interesting book, uh, but an interesting time for Israel and the Jews. Today we look into Ezra, uh, and right at the beginning we'll see a very exact prophecy fulfilled, uh, which is kind of powerful. So we read this a few weeks ago because Daniel, the, those last three chapters of Daniel, happened in the third year of Cyrus's reign over the Babylonian area. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, why don't you open there with me to Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1, starting at verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may uh, his God be with him, and let him go up to, to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem." And let every survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So, first of all, the author writes this, uh, the author that wrote this was, was going to fulfill, or the author writes that this was going to fulfill the words of Jeremiah. And those words are found in Jeremiah chapter 25, pretty much the whole chapter, but I'll just uh, look at 25 verses 12 and 13 says this, um, uh, then after 70 years are completed, talking about the exile, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. There's a couple of chapters in Jeremiah in which it's it's just proclamations against nations and what's going to happen. And he pretty much gets all of them at that known world at, at that time. And so the writer of Ezra here, the first part there says, this was so that the words of Jeremiah could be fulfilled and, and out comes this decree. However, we're going to travel back in time anywhere from about 150 to 200 years before this decree was actually written in Isaiah chapter 44. 
If you have your Bibles, you can turn there, but you don't have to. We'll, we'll get back to Ezra in a minute. But Isaiah chapter 44, starting at verse 24, says this. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who, ref- who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and the temple, your foundation, shall be laid. Chapter 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue the nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, the gates may not be closed. I will clo- I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Beside me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. The people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. That was pretty specific. (laughs) Number one, again, this is 150 to 200 years prior to Cyrus making the decree which also means this is a long time before Jerusalem is sacked by Babylon, before the temple is destroyed. And here's Isaiah just prophesying like it's nothing, that listen, the walls are going, or the, the, the temple is going to be rebuilt. The foundation is going to be laid again. I'm sure whoever was reading this at the time that Isaiah wrote it was like, what are you talking about? The temple's right there. What do you need to build a foundation for? We're all good. So not only does Isaiah prophesy the destruction of the temple and, and, and the, the fact that the cities in Judah are going to be destroyed, but, but when it comes to the restoration, he names the king who's going to start the restoration by name. Comes out and says, Cyrus, the man that I've held, I'm holding his right hand and guiding him in everywhere that he's going. And so here is this very specific prophecy, this this amazing, powerful prophecy that not only does he prophesy the destruction of the temple um, before it happened, but prophesies the name of the king who would head up that initial restoration of both of them. Now, there is a slight issue with this prophecy and the decree made by Cyrus. Twice, as, as you heard, Isaiah wrote that Cyrus does not know the Lord. Yet when we read the decree, it sure does seem that Cyrus knew who the Lord was. Now, one thing to understand is that Isaiah is talking about Cyrus not knowing God to the point of worshiping him or even respecting him as God. 
That's, that's part of what Isaiah is talking. You don't know me. I know you. I call you by name. I name you. I know what's going on here. You don't know me, though. You don't worship me. You don't follow me. So there's, there's, there's kind of that aspect. Cyrus knew that the Jews had their God, just like every other nation had their God. All nations had gods. I mean, you, you weren't living in an atheistic society whatsoever back then. Everybody had a God, and everybody knew their God, and everybody knew the other gods. Maybe not intimately, but they knew. That person's God is that God. That person's God is that God. Da, 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 da. We've talked about it before. The, the belief of the time was your God was most powerful in the region that your people ruled. So if you ruled that area, your God was more powerful. And all the other gods are, are wimps in that spot, and they can't overcome anything. That's part of why we see within the decree that Cyrus says, Here, he's the God in Jerusalem. Okay, so, so there's, there's that aspect. Cyrus knew that the Jews had their God like every other nation. However, the writing of this decree shows a much more intimate knowledge of the Lord. The most important proof of this is in verse 2 and 3 when, uh, when the word Lord is used. Note if you have your uh, written version of the Bible in front of you, whether, even if it's on a phone, you'll notice that all the words of the word Lord, all the letters are capitalized, L-O-R-D, and then L is bigger than the other letters. This indicates that what is being used here when they're translating the Bible, uh, what's being used here is what's known as the tetragram. And it is a four-letter word for God. Y-H-W-H. Most of us will pronounce it Yahweh. There are no vowels in it because they never felt that we were good enough to put vowels in it. So when you see the vowels in there, if you ever read something and it says Yahweh and you see Y-A-H-W-E-H, that was some English dude that said, let's put some vowels in this so that it makes more sense. <laughs> but the Jews always felt like we can never do that. We can never stand powerful enough to be able to say the name of God. And so they would do that. They would just put these four letters. And this was a very specific name for God. This was his name that he gave to them. This is my name, Yahweh. Also Jehovah translated into English. Cyrus would not have known this name. He would have used the term Adonai or El, which were the common words for God. And so when they're, you know, when they're, um, when they're uh, translating this, this section of scripture, they see this YHWH, whatever those actual letters are within the Hebrew language, and it's not Adonai and it's not L. So this is very intimate. Cyrus, again, would not have known this name. He would have used those common terms. Yahweh or Jehovah would be God's specific name that was not used outside of the Jewish community. So what's up with this decree? How did Cyrus do this? Well, typically, kings didn't write decrees. They actually didn't. Someone else wrote them, and then they signed it or sealed it themselves, right? Here's the decree. Write it. Okay, signed, sealed, delivered. I'm yours. You're good to go. That's how this works. Bada bing, bada boom. We do the same things today, right? Our Congress is the one that writes the laws. And then what do they do? If it's in the state, they bring it to the governor's desk. If it's the federal government, they bring it to the president's desk. And then they come, and what do they do? They sign it. Now it's the law. I didn't write it at all. I'm the president. I'm the governor. I didn't write any of this, but I agree with it, so I'm going to sign it. You guys write it, make up the words, make sure it looks good and all this stuff, blah, 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 and that's what happens, and this is what happened with this particular decree. Someone else had to have written this decree, and Cyrus said, looks good to me. Let me sign it. Now let everybody know 
and make it happen. So who wrote the decree? Most scholars believe it was probably Daniel. Recall back in Daniel chapter 9 that he perceived the time of the end of the exile being 70 years based on the words of Jeremiah. The first verse of Ezra stated that this fulfilled Jeremiah's words. It's quite possible that Daniel, who was technically still an official uh, within the area of Babylon, could speak to Cyrus, probably through King Darius, who was in charge of the area of Babylon at the time. He comes up to Darius and says, hey, listen, there's this prophecy about your king, about Cyrus, that is supposed to come in and he's going to thwart all these these nations, and he's going to take out Babylon. Now, just speaking of Jeremiah, he's like, listen, he's, he's coming in and he's taking out Babylon. He's done that, so he is the fulfillment of this prophecy. So the word gets to him, and I'm sure it's very possible that Cyrus was more than happy to have Daniel write the decree and then sign it. Probably tells, tells Darius or whoever the messenger is, listen, that Daniel guy is pretty smart. I like that guy. Let's go ahead, have him write it, and then I'll be sure to sign it. Just make sure I see it before, before you give it out. And so he does, he writes it, and then you see those intimate terms. Those intimate terms in Daniel showing, look at the fulfillment of the prophecy of the Lord. This is not just some king saying, hey, go out and do this. This is the Lord your God saying, you have the opportunity to go back to Jerusalem, to go back to Judah, and to reestablish everything that was going on. But then look also at what else the decree orders at the end of verse 4. The end of verse 4, it says, And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. That's a nice little tagline that if it was Daniel that he kind of put on there, right? <laughs> hey, by the way, why don't you help these guys out as they head back? Remember Egypt and the Israelites leaving Egypt? What happened? They got poured over, just showered over with gold and animals and all sorts of items of wealth as they were leaving uh, the land of Egypt and heading out. God always provides. God never sends them out empty-handed. He provides for them. Even though this was a time of punishment, this was a time of discipline, when he allows them to get back, what does he do? Here's provision for everything you need when you get there. Here's the gold, here's the silver, here's animals, here's all these other things. All this stuff is there. Listen, friends, whenever the Lord wants something to happen, he provides that thing that that will happen. He provides everything that's needed so that it will happen. What, was the, what has the Lord willed in your life? Whatever it is, friends, he will provide everything you need to make it happen. He'll provide the finances. He'll provide the strength. He'll provide the time. He'll provide the patience. He'll provide all of those things for you. You know the Lord has called you to this. You know the Lord has directed your paths. He's guiding you in everywhere you're going. You now need to grab that faith and say, listen, God, I'm going to follow you, and you're going to provide everything for him because I know you've called me to this. And the Lord will do it. The Lord will provide all things. The question is, will we take the, the step of faith and be, be obedient knowing that he will provide? Do you truly believe that the Lord will do that? Where are you at in your situations, in your job, in your schooling, in your hanging out with people, in your coming and going to church? Where are you at in those situations? Father, where are you guiding me? What are you trying to tell me? Where, where am I supposed to go? He will provide for every single thing. Are you grabbing on and taking that step of faith and being obedient, knowing that he will provide?
Technically, that same question is posed to the Israelites, and they respond in verse 5 of Ezra 1. Look at verse 5 with me. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Again, providing everything that they need. But not only do the common people go and provide, King Cyrus jumps in on this. Look at verse 7. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus king of Persia brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, uh, the treasurer who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylon to Jerusalem. So you have this list of all these things, all these gold bowls and, 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 and all these different items and stuff. But notice there's something very important missing in the list of items from Mish- Mithridath to Sheshbazar. Feel sorry for these guys. I don't know if their parents didn't like them or what. It's probably easier to pronounce in Hebrew. I have no idea. Want to take a guess at what that item might be that's missing in this list? Anybody? Bunch of bowls, bunch of stuff. What? Boom. Good job, pastor's kid. I did not tell him. I didn't tell him. The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. That's right. When Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple, only God knows what he did with the Ark of the Covenant. We have no clue what he did with it. The second temple did not contain the Ark of the Covenant. I don't know what he did with it. Maybe he opened the lid and everybody's faces melted off and he was like, skip it, destroy it. I don't know. Anybody seen Raiders of the Lost Ark out there? Anybody? Anyways. (laughs) I I doubt that's what happened. But We don't know what happened. This is when it's lost. It's like, where did he put it? I don't know, but he put it somewhere. The second temple did not contain the Ark of the Covenant. We'll see that they will build the temple as they should in the book of Ezra. But the Holy of Holies was empty. On the Day of Atonement, the one day of the year, they were allowed in there. They would simply have to literally pour the blood on the floor. They, they, during the Day of Atonement, they would come in behind that veil, and they would have to sprinkle blood and put blood on the corners of the horns of the, the altar. Well, it's not there. The, the, the Ark of the Covenant's gone. So it's kind of like, well, let's just <laughs> splatter on the floor, I guess, is mainly what, what would have had to have happened. We know the veil was there uh, to set the area apart because it tore in two from top to bottom at the time of Christ's death, according to the Gospels. Uh, but what this really signifies is a significant time of change in how the Israelites worshiped God. 
I mean, this is this is significant. This is a big deal. I mean, the Ark of the Covenant was huge. It was it was it was a big deal. And for them to not have this, there there's there's this changing of how they're going to be able to worship God. Not that they've. I mean, they've technically have had this problem for seventy years, right? Remember when we talked about Ezekiel, who was supposed to be a priest. But what happens? He doesn't have a temple. He doesn't have anything. So he becomes a prophet. <laughs> and the Lord calls him to be a prophet instead of a priest, as he's called to do, because he doesn't have any of those things. All of these things are gone. Again, a significant time of change in how the Israelites worship God. We'll see next week that only like 50-ish thousand Jews return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Only like 50,000. Now, I say only, and it sounds like a small number, or sounds it's like, Pastor Dave, I say only, that's that's a pretty big number. I mean, yes, because that's more than all of the people in Watanwan County, you know, and probably Cottonwood County combined. I have no idea. But but compared to how many Jews were actually there, you know, Babylon, Persia, none of these guys had like a major genocide of the Jews. So there was easily at least 2 million, possibly 3 million Jews. So to have 50,000 head back to Jerusalem to do this, that, that's really a, a small percentage. It's not a large percentage. And most, if not all of them, had little connection beyond their parents or grandparents to Jerusalem and the temple. They're like, listen, I, I don't really remember that. We, we didn't go there. You know, when, well, we were in exile, our parents didn't go back to the Dead Sea and vacation in a, in a timeshare. We just didn't go back there. That wasn't, that wasn't our thing. That's not how it worked. I, I just, I don't have much connection there. So a lot of them ended up not going back. Because of this, synagogues start showing up in place of the temple, though the temple still ha- is significant, has, has significant importance. New holidays are formed. Specifically, we'll see Purim. Uh, we won't see Hanukkah being formed, but, but those are a couple of new holidays that join in on the Jewish calendar. Then there's a bunch of new traditions. By the time Jesus gets to earth, he's being asked why his disciples aren't following their human traditions. What does Jesus do? He quotes from Isaiah, and according uh, to the New Living uh, uh, Translation of the Bible, he calls their worship a farce. He calls it a mockery. You sit here and you're so worried about your human traditions and what you're doing, but you're not even following the ways of the Lord. And he's not even getting on to them about the fact that there's no Ark of the Covenant. He's more concerned about the fact that they're all yelling at him because they're not washing their hands before they eat. Again, we've talked about that before. It's okay to wash your hands before you eat. Just don't put people to hell if they don't. Over the course of time, the Jews, the Israelites, had lost their true worship of God. They cared more about their comfort and what they thought God would like. Now here we are in 2023 in a semi-similar situation. We've got plenty of churches and denominations claiming to be the best at following God. We've got a few more holidays. We've got Christmas and Easter now. We've got a whole slew of traditions made up over the last few millennia. All sorts of crazy traditions out there. All sorts of things that people do, certain vestments that they wear, certain colors that they wear, certain, you know, they count down from the days of when something happened. Jesus was born. This is the 12th Sunday from Advent. This is the 12th Sunday from Pentecost, whatever it is. I can't keep count that well, so sorry we don't do that here in our church, but we don't. But we have the same things, right? The traditions 
all the new stuff. Then there's the actual stuff the Bible encourages us to uh, encourages us to do in our worship, helping those in need. James one twenty seven, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this: to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 40, Jesus speaking here. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. How about meeting and encouraging one another? Lifting each other up, Hebrews 11, chapter 24 through 20, or chapter 11, verses 24 through 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. How about praying, singing praise, raising hands in worship? 1 Corinthians 14, 15. I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. 1 Timothy 2, 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. How about communion? The one that Christ actually said, hey, do this in remembrance of me. If you do anything I told you to do, at least do that. Take the cup and the the bread as the blood and the body of Christ. Listen, we can go on and on. There's all sorts of stuff that the Bible shows us, what it looks like to worship God in spirit and in truth. But Christ brought up this issue back in the story in Mark. Continuing with the quoting from Isaiah, Jesus says, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Our relationship with God, friends, isn't just doing stuff. It's doing it with the right mindset. It's doing it with the right heart set. That's not a word, by the way. (laughs) Mindset is, but heart set's not. (laughs) I'm making it a word today. Done. You hear me, Webster? That's what's going on having that right mindset. It's doing it because God is at the center of all we do. Jesus was quoting Isaiah long before Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, meaning mankind has had an issue with putting God at the center of the worship for a long, long time. Long time. We have this hard time of saying, God, how do you want to be worshipped? (laughs) Now I'm going to do it. We've seen it as we've gone through the Old Testament. Even when God had set laws, this is how you're supposed to do it. They still didn't do it right, right? Especially in the book of Judges. If you want to see them really messing it up, read the book of Judges. You want to see us messing it up? Watch us on a daily basis. Anyways. We've all messed up. 
Throughout this time, though, God in all of his grace and mercy has accepted the worship of people who will put him back in the center of what they are doing. I, I, every now and then I read about it or I talk to someone about it. You know, you should be practicing this. You should be practicing this festival. You should be practicing Passover, especially now that, I mean, we're not exactly coming up to Easter, but it's, it's coming. We should be practicing all these things because that's what the Jews, I, I get that, I understand that. But there's an aspect to where we're getting into a time when they were like, we can't practice any of these things because we're not in Jerusalem and we're not at the temple. And so they would do what they could, and they would do the best that they could. But the key there was what? Making sure that God was at the center of their worship. God is going to be in the middle of this. And that's why you see the, and we'll see them too. We'll see the powerful stories of Ezra, the powerful stories of Nehemiah, the powerful stories of the powerful story of Esther. I mean, Esther is a powerful, powerful story. And yet these are the same people, Esther and Mordecai. I mean, they didn't go back to Jerusalem. They were hanging out in Susa, what would be the new capital. They're in Babylonia right now. But they're going to end up in Susa, and, and all these things are going to take place because they're putting God at the center, at the middle of what they're doing. God has, in all of his grace and mercy, has always accepted the worship of people who will put him back in the center of what they are doing. Listen, friends, when Jesus came the first time, the temple was empty of its most important item. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. The next time Christ comes, there will be temples empty of their most important items. What does Jesus say? Not everybody who cries to me, Lord, Lord, is going to make it to the kingdom of heaven. And you know the ones that aren't going to make it are going to be those that are missing that most important item from their temple. And that is the Holy Spirit. That is God, the center of their worship. We need to keep the temple full. How do we do that? We make God the center and concentrate all we do for the glory and honor of the Lord. We don't do it for our comfort. We don't do it for our popularity. We don't do it for our prosperity. We do it all for the Lord. Lord, how does this expand your kingdom? How does this bring you glory? How does this bring you honor? How does this bring you worship? I mean, if, if you thought about that every time you sat down to do something, every single time you, did, you sat down to do something or stood up to do something, whatever it is, <laughs> Does this bring honor to the Lord? Does this lift the Lord up? Does this put God at the center of what I'm doing? Every single thing. As you sit down and you watch a television show, is this putting God at the center? As you pick up a book, is this putting God at the center? As you go to your studies, as you make plans, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, da 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 Is God at the center? I'm going to do this for my life, okay? Is God at the center? This person's going to be my spouse. Is God at the center? I'm about to, to stuff my face with chocolate and steak. Is God at the center? Of course he is. Thank you, God, for providing. In all seriousness, though, is God at the center of everything that we're doing? Because like I said, there's, when Christ comes back the second time, there's going to be empty temples. He, he warns a lot about it. A lot about it. 
the, the, the way to life is what? Narrow. And few find it. Now, don't get me wrong. I have no clue what few is when there's 6 billion people on the planet at any given time. <laughs> few could be a billion. I don't know. It's fewer than 6 billion. <laughs> but the whole idea there, the whole concept there is to think, listen, I don't want to be a part of that majority. That doesn't make it on that path. And the way to keep it is to keep God at the center, to keep God in the middle of it. We saw everything that God has called us to do just within the New Testament scriptures. I didn't even cover the Ten Commandments, which are technically still around. What are we doing to make God at the center? Stand with me today as we pray over this. I want you to take time today to focus and make God the center of all you do. You know, maybe you're 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 going through life, you know, at a you know hair on fire pace, just doing everything you want to do. And look, at I'm doing this, I'm getting this done, getting this done, getting this done, getting this done. And you've never stopped and said, "Lord, is this what you want me to do?" Some of you may, you may all of a sudden have to be like, "Floop, I stopped," and the Lord wants me to change direction. For some of you, that's going to take a huge amount of faith if he does say that to you today. But I encourage you to take that step of faith and say, God, I'm going to follow that step of faith. I'm going to do what you've called me to do. Some of you, you're good. The Lord's like, yeah, you've been going at a breakneck pace right now. But I'm with you the whole way. And you're going to continue and you're going to finish this out. And you're going to see good things happen because I am with you.